Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. All right, listen, so I'm looking at chapters 13, I'm looking at chapters 14, and they got me pissed off. Not because I don't like what's happening in there, not because I'm not learning a lot per usual, but because it's just a jumble. This is one of those times when it would be great if Lacan just slowed down, lined things up, invoked his previous work, showed how what he was doing now is different from that. That ain't how his brain works. Maybe that's not how his notes work, but it's how we try and work. So let's see if we can make some sense here of chapters 13 and 14. Chapter 15, well, if you've got there, you've seen bro is sick. He shows up with a fever, but he does say one thing in 15 that marks the turning point that allows us, I believe, to add some crucial diagrammatic captions to what he's up to. Okay, let's start with 13. Psychoanalysis. He tells us in 13, studies unconscious knowledge about the sexual as it finds expression in drives that, oddly enough, divert from real, absolute enjoyment in service to the production of a more socially acceptable kind of satisfaction. Now, each of these words in this summary of what he's doing in 13 is, of course, a term that we could unpack and explore further. We've done a lot of that work before, but it is worth noting some of the key themes here. First, he is suggesting here that the drive can be satisfied outside of, via sublimation, its sexual goal and apart from enjoyment. And that's interesting here. I would suggest this puts us back on the rails of surplus enjoyment. But what he's doing here is he's digging back into Freud to suggest an understanding of how the drive can be satisfied outside of enjoyment in a kind of attenuated, sublimated form. And so what we're working towards here, I would suggest, are two theories of the drive. One that we get from Lacan in Seminar 11 and the essays that attend that period. And now we've got an understanding of the drive that he's using to try and think his way towards surplus jouissance. That's the wager. I'm reading along as I deliver these lectures. I haven't read ahead except by a chapter or two to try and keep us on point. But check this out. The definition I just gave you about what psychoanalysis does, it also tells us something about psychoanalytic inquiry. It tells us that psychoanalytic inquiry is a critique of sorts. It moves in the genre of critique in its original Kantian sense. Psychoanalysis calls conscious knowledge into question by focusing on what, according to Lacan, is its condition of possibility, namely 
unconscious knowledge, specifically unconscious knowledge of the sexual. The sexual as rendered unconscious by way of prohibition and the logics of castration, the minus fee of loss and the obja of lack that we've discussed so many times before. The sexual is a word that he's using to mark the space of the real as a result of prohibition. You can see this in chapters 13 and 14. In fact, let's go ahead and take a look. Chapter 13, page 3 through 4. These are good chapters, by the way. They're annoying, but they're good. Chapter 13, pages 3 to 4, he sets up some pretty hilarious stuff here. Um, first, he wants everybody to know that, as he puts it on page 2 of chapter 13, who has ever learned in psychoanalysis how to treat his wife properly? He has said this elsewhere in his work, too. Lacan is really keen on this. We talk a lot about sex in psychoanalysis, but very few people have ever read Freud or Lacan and learned how to be a better lover. There's not a technical aspect for sexuality provided by psychoanalysis. And that's what he says at the top of page three. He wants to distinguish between the techniques of the body, something properly erotic that don't have anything to do with psychoanalysis and the type of sexual knowledge that he says is tackled in psychoanalysis. Check it out, bottom of page three, maybe 10 lines up from the bottom. The angle then from which sexual knowledge is tackled in psychoanalysis, knowing very clearly here that he's not talking about how to have sex, how to be a good lover, the kind of techniques of the body that he is distinguishing from psychoanalytic inquiry at the top of page three. He says, okay, well, what kind of sexual knowledge, if it's not a kind of know-how for the bedroom, does psychoanalysis traffic in? Or in this case, tackle. The angle from which sexual knowledge is tackled in psychoanalysis is why it takes on its weight in the way that I write it. There again, once more, what is at stake is a recourse to what is obvious from the start. And this is indeed the prohibition, properly speaking, that can cover this knowledge, sexual knowledge. The angle from which I would not say we enter into it, but are confronted by it, the way that only the real can confront us, is again the following. In the sense that this angle was never taken, it is to tackle it from the point where this prohibition is bought, brought to bear. And that is why the first statements of Freud with respect to the unconscious put the accent on the function of censorship as such. So some of you wonder why the emphasis in this series at the start of the castrative process is on the no of the father. And this is always, for Lacan, I argue, the starting point for symbolic alienation. It begins with prohibition. And it can happen at all these different stages of development. Again, if you like to play the stage game. But really, it's around language acquisition, what you might classify as the phallic stage, if, again, if you like the stage game, that Lacan intervenes. It's at the level of language acquisition, where the first word the child hears and understands, no matter what that word actually was, functioned as a no. 
the no of the father, a prohibition, thereby inaugurating castration, lack, and the like. We've been over this a million times, so I'm not going to spend too much time with it. I just want to point it out that he's right there with it. Chapter 13, page 3. Continuing to the top of page 4. This prohibition is exercised as affecting a certain there, that place where it speaks, where it avows itself, where it avows that it is preoccupied by the question of knowledge. You know what this there is. And admire there, in passing once again, the riches of language. And then he goes on to make this cool move with preoccupation from Bizetsung. It's kind of interesting, and it just means occupation, but he wants to put a pre on the front of it, which is pretty terrific, as suggesting something with which we are occupied in advance. And what can this be? What can we be occupied with in advance? What can be meant? And this is what requires us to return to it again. To this function of, wait for it, the unconscious. What can be meant by this knowledge, whose mark at a certain level that is articulated from truth is defined by the fact that this knowledge that preoccupies you is what you know least. Prohibition conditions a certain there that is the space of the unconscious. And it's a space that is a preoccupying space. Before any occupations, there's a preoccupation that we all have with unconscious knowledge. Knowledge where we know the least, arguably about the most. This topic of prohibition pops up again in the following chapter, in chapter 14, page 9. It's about the middle of the page where Lacan starts pointing to um, contaminations. Gotta love those contaminations. The very origin of communication studies is to be contaminated. I love this. Let us pay attention, therefore, to these contaminations, he says on page 9, chapter 14, which make it so easy for us to cover over a function, the whole essential of which escapes us, perhaps, with the position of plus or minus in mathematics. Indeed, that of the one or zero in logic. Now, don't even tempt me with this. He's talking pluses, he's talking minuses, he's talking ones, and he's talking zeros. You know the kind of fuzzy math that we like to work with in this series, where 1 plus 1 equals 3, where 1 minus 1 equals 0, which is, of course, the equation for phi minus phi, little a, phallus minus the phallus in the stage of castration results in the zero point known as lack, the zero point of desire, as Lacan often would say in the 60s. So don't even tempt me with the stuff on logic, with the zero, with the plus and minus in mathematics. We've been there. We've done that. Reading on. And this all the more so because, as I might say, Freudian logic puts us precisely at the sharp end of the fact that it cannot function in polar terms. Everything that it has introduced as a logic of sex comes under the jurisdiction of a single term, perhaps even a unary term, which is truly its original term, namely the connotation of a lack, an essential minus that is called castration. Here, of course, he's referring to the minus fee. 
resulting in a lack, symbolized here by objaya, if we're going to be more precise with what he's doing here. Without this, nothing would be able to function at its level insofar as its level is that of a logical order. All normativity is organized for the man as for the woman around the transfer of a lack. This is what we see at the level of the logical structuring such as it flows from Freudian experience. So here what we're seeing again is an understanding of psychoanalytic inquiry that is effectively critical. Critical because it asks about the conditions of possibility, in this case, for conscious knowledge. And for Lacan, the condition of possibility for conscious knowledge is a preoccupation with the unconscious as the field of the sexual, the sexual being that which is prohibited in social orders. Here he's talking us through that prohibitive process with all of its ones and zeros and pluses and minus signs. It's a good passage. Chapter 14, page 9, to have your finger on. Let's take one more step. Does psychoanalysis have an epistemology? If it does, it's an epistemology about knowing how to be with the unconscious. And that is an important move that Lacan makes in these chapters. The type of knowledge that psychoanalysis provides us is not a kind of know-how. It's not a kind of technical knowledge. It's instead a knowledge of how to be with it. How to be with it is the point that he makes. The type of knowledge that he affects is a knowledge that has to do with how to be with it. Chapter 13, page 6. It is rather knowing how to be with it. Not a kind of knowing one's way around. Not a kind of know-how. The type of knowledge that psychoanalysis allows us to approach, even if only notionally, he says, on page 6 of chapter 13, is knowing how to be with it. One can be with it without knowing that one is with it, even. And that to believe oneself more certain by being wary of this being with it, to believe oneself to be elsewhere in a different knowledge, means one is fully in it. The more you think, in other words, that you are in the field of conscious waking knowledge, the field properly defined as epistemology, the more fully, Lacan says, you are there with the unconscious, more fully in another field. A certain there that is not the one with which you believe you to, to yourself to be concerned. This is what psychoanalysis says. One is in it without knowing it. One is in. One is in it in all the fields of knowledge. Name your discipline. Lacan's point is that the undergirding condition of possibility for these disciplinary knowledges, these discourse formations, these S2s, is a preoccupation with unconscious knowledge of the sexual in an absolute real on the path to enjoyment sense. It's an important move. It's an important move because, again, it lines up Lacanian psychoanalysis with the greatest invention of Immanuel Kant, which is the genre known as critique. 
right? Critique of pure reason, critique of practical reason, critique of judgment. And if you've got ears to hear, you know that Kant also ends with the critique of religion. That book came out in a few different forms, but that's where he was headed with this, was towards a critique of religion. Now, I'm not saying that's what Lacan is doing here, but add to the list of critiques. Religion would be one among many discourses that Lacan would put here with this idea that you would have a field of knowledge known as religion. So also with mathematics, zoology, anthropology, fill in your department. And that is why it is from this angle that psychoanalysis is found to be important for putting knowledge in question. This calling of conscious knowledge, qua epistemology, into question is what psychoanalytic inquiry does. And this doing marks it as a line of critique, a kind of critical inquiry. It is nowhere from any truth, and specifically not from any ontology. Wherever one may be, wherever one functions, through the function of knowledge, one is in the horizon of the sexual. And the sexual, of course, is this placeholder in these middle chapters for what Lacan would eventually, before and after this, know as the real. We're going to talk a lot about that as we get into chapters 13, 14, and 15. But for now, we've got this understanding of psychoanalytic inquiry as critical inquiry because it calls into question all fields of knowledge, all discourses, all S2s by focusing on the presuppositional structure known as the unconscious. That's what we have so far. It ain't a lot to work with, but it's a solid enough foundation for us to take another step. All right, recall where we started this riff on chapters 13 and 14 with the idea that psychoanalysis studies unconscious knowledge about the sexual as this knowledge finds expression in, and here's the part we're going to start focusing on now, drives that, oddly enough, can be used to defer and divert from real, absolute enjoyment at the level of the sexual, which doesn't have to do with crawling into bed with all those techniques of the body, mind you. These drives diverted from the sexual in service to the production of a socially acceptable kind of satisfaction that is different from enjoyment. So again, you have this idea that the drives can be used to satisfy something outside its sexual goal, outside the sexual goal of all drives. In other words, apart from enjoyment. There's a kind of drive satisfaction that is related to, but according to Lacan here, as he suggests, somehow outside or distinct from, by way of sublimation, enjoyment. Where exactly does the sexual, in its absolute real relation to enjoyment, sit in all this? Where do we find it? The drives are somehow connected to enjoyment. We heard this in seminar 11 in the writings from those period. Now, we're told that they also mark a diversion from enjoyment. 
Lacan's not so quick to let go of enjoyment, but he wants to mark that there's a different kind of enjoyment, a supplemental, different kind of satisfaction happening here. My wager is that we can talk about this in terms of surplus enjoyment. But again, we're reading along one page at a time, and it's not always sure that this is where he's going to go with it. But here we are in chapter 14 with a couple of clues. We've been reading on page 9, among others. That's where we talked about castration, lack, the plus, the minus, the zero, the one, all that on page 9. If you pop down to the end of the page 9 on chapter 14, you're also going to find him invoking Seminar 7, Ethics of Psychoanalysis. Stuff about pleasure, stuff about stimulation. And then right there at the top of page 10, chapter 14, in this manuscript we're working with, we get some better clues. The centrality of a forbidden zone is where page 10 starts. This forbidden zone that is central to the field of socially acceptable lines of satisfaction is where we're going to find the sexual, the real, the enjoyment, all in an extimate relation, by the way. He's going to be keen on this term, extimate as well. An exterior or an outside that is intimately caught up within a system. That's the thing about the real. It's not an outside space. It's a hole in the text. It's a hole in discourse. It's a hole in the other. More than some sort of an out of bounds. It's the internal limit, if you will that we're going to be talking about here. Here he figures it as the centrality of a forbidden zone, let us say, because the pleasure would be too intense. This centrality is what I designate as the field of enjoyment. Enjoyment itself being defined as everything related to the distribution of pleasure in the body. This distribution, its inner limit, is what conditions, what at the time, and of course with more words, more illustrations than I can give here, what I put forward I designated as a vacuole. It's an interesting image that pops up here in 14, and then transforms into an even more interesting image at the height of Lacan's fever, when he shows up for his 15th lecture in seminar 16. Here, though, he throws it out the vacuole, as this prohibition at the center that constitutes, in short, what is nearest to us, while at the same time being outside us. It would be necessary to make up the word extimate to designate what is at stake. So there's that term, extimate, an inner limit structured like a vacuole, he says, I don't know biologically if that's, you know, at least in terms of cellular biology, if the vacuole is really what he wants to be using here, but it is the term. He's using vacuole so we can work with it. I think there's a better image, though, that pops up in 15 than this notion of the vacuole that he's messing with here in 14. Um, the important part for us right now is that the centrality of the forbidden zone known as the real, where enjoyment hangs out, where the sexual is placed, where the unconscious knowledge of the sexual rages and so forth, it's an inner limit. 
It's something extimate to the field of the big other. He goes on to start messing with this, and he calls it a neighbor, building on Freud, a nebenmensch. You see it in the middle of page 10. This man who is closest, this man who is ambiguous because one does not know how to situate him. Who is this person? Where is he going to be grasped? Okay, you can see all this working out on page 10. Page 11, he tells us about this neighbor again. Remember, he's trying to illustrate somehow the centrality of a forbidden zone in the symbolic known as the real. A forbidden zone in the field of pleasure known as enjoyment. A forbidden zone in the field of conscious knowledge known as unconscious knowledge of the sexual. So we can keep riffing this out. The structure is one that we're really working hard to get here. And if the Taurus pops to mind, that's a good image to hold here as well. But it's not the image he's working with. Chapter 14, Seminar 16, he's got the neighbor in mind. The neighbor, is it what I have called the big other? What I make use of to make function the presence of signifying articulation in the unconscious? Certainly not. The neighbor is the intolerable eminence of enjoyment. The big other is only its cleared out terrapline, and that's important here. I can all the same say these things rapidly like that, given how long I have articulated for you the definition of the big other. Here it is, y'all. The big other is precisely that terrain which is cleared of enjoyment. The truth of the big other is precisely that it is a terrain cleared of enjoyment. It is at the level of the big other that those who take the trouble will be able to situate what, in a book by Deleuze, is entitled with admirable rigor and correctness and as distinct in agreement with everything that the modern thinking of logicians allows to be defined from what are called events, the production, mise-en-scene, and the whole carousel linked to the existence of language. It is there in the big other that there is the unconscious structured like a language. The important part for us here is obviously this idea that the big other is a terrain that has been cleared of enjoyment. Or if you like it, the big other is a field in the center of which, on the edge of which, but nevertheless within which, there is a black hole, a well, a well into which enjoyment has been placed. And in fact, what you could even say, the well that enjoyment is. Enjoyment wasn't something that could then be placed into a hole in the symbolic. Enjoyment is very precisely the hole in the middle of the symbolic. The real is not something contained in the hole. It's the hole itself. The other is a terrain cleared of enjoyment. And he thinks somehow Deleuze has got this right too. Well, if you've read chapter 14, you know he's got Deleuze on the brain. There's difference in repetition on page 2. Page 3 through 4 is all about the logic of sense. Lacan is hollering at his boy Deleuze here. But for our purposes, 
It's this intolerable, imminent neighbor. Something that is close to you, but still quite unfamiliar that Lacan is using to capture this forbidden zone of enjoyment. This forbidden zone of enjoyment from which the drive can be diverted. That's the important part here for us, too, with our definition of what psychoanalysis studies. Drives can be diverted from their goals. And there's a very real sense in which drives are always drifty in this way. Drives are always deriving from their various horizons. Here, what Lacan is saying is that that horizon, that goal of the drives is always sexual, and that's the, the turning away that you can affect with the drive. It's a turn away from, a recoil even, if you will, away from the forbidden zone of enjoyment and toward a more socially acceptable kind of satisfaction, which we're going to come to here in a minute. Let's take a look at this notion of diversion here. The drives can be diverted from their sexual goal. The word for this diversion that Lacan's queuing up in chapters 13 and 14 of Seminar 16, the word here is sublimation. This is the method. He's doing some interesting things here. The drives, he says, are instruments. A drive is an organon, he said, an apparatus. It's a really interesting thing to think about here. They're the means of producing something a kind of satisfaction. Satisfying what? We're not entirely sure yet. We got some clues. But the question is, how do they work in this sublimatory way at the level of sublimation? First clue comes to us in chapter 13, page 10. That is why we come back to the drive, he says in the middle of page 10. It is no doubt mythological, as Freud himself wrote. But what is not so is the supposition that a drive is satisfied by it. I'm sorry, that a subject is satisfied by it. Now, it is not thinkable without the implication already in the drive of a certain knowledge of its character of taking the place of the sexual. Only there you are. What does that mean, that it is not thinkable? Because things can go as far as to question the effect of thinking as suspect, perhaps we know absolutely nothing about what that means to take the place of the sexual. The very idea of the sexual can be an effect of the passage of what is at the heart of the drive, namely objet a. An interesting clue to what he's doing here, where a certain knowledge at the level of the drive is taking the place of the sexual. Then he goes on to really carve out a definition of enjoyment. Page 11, enjoyment is something that is only noticed by seeing how constant it is in Freud's statements, but it is also what is noticed from experience. I mean, psychoanalytic experience. Check it out. Enjoyment is here an absolute. It is the real. And in the way that I have defined it, as what always returns to the same place. It is always from a beyond of enjoyment. Now remember, this is a beyond that is internalized. It's an internal limit. As an absolute that all the articulated determinations of what is involved in desire logically find their correct place. And he goes on to talk about enjoyment playing the function of being outside the limits of the game. Read the symbolic, read language, read the big other. 
and then he's back to the unconscious. But we don't really get another good riff on sublimation until he comes to page 14 in chapter 13 here. Sublimation is the key theme. When Freud articulates sublimation, he underlines that if it has a relationship with the object, it is through the intermediary of something that he exploits at the level at which he introduces it and that he calls idealization. But that, in its essence, is mit dem trieb, with the drive. Now, it's tempting to think that his German trieb is the important word here. It is not. The important word here is mit, which is the German word for with. There's a mitness. There's a withness, a mitlichkeit, if you like your Heidegger. There's a withness structure to the drive, which comports with what Lacan's doing in his appropriation of Aristotle for understanding the drive as an organon. The drive is an apparatus, a tool, an instrument, a means with which you can pursue certain ends, a tool with which you can produce certain types of satisfaction and so forth. It's this withness, this with structure of the drive that Lacan is really hot on here. Now, if you're a media studies scholar, if you're a media theorist, you can hear this and know exactly what's going on. But if you're a psychoanalyst listening to this, the question is about this mitness, this mitlichkeit, onward and upward with sublimation. For a few lines down, sublimation is properly speaking and as such, a mode of satisfaction of the drive. He's not saying it's the mode. Notice that. He's saying that by way of sublimation, you can satisfy the drive in a certain way. It's not the only pursuit that the drive can have, but sublimation is one of them, he says here. The question again, the question he's putting here is, what is satisfied when the drive is repurposed in a sublimatory field? what is produced, in other words, at the level of satisfaction. It is with the drive, a drive that he qualifies as zilgehemt, diverted, people translate it from its goal. And what's the goal from which the drive is diverted here? We're moving fast and for good purpose here. There's nothing easier than to see the drive being satisfied outside its sexual goal, he says at the bottom of 14. The drive is diverted from its sexual goal when it is appropriated for sublimatory purposes. Now that's kind of a jumble, and you can tell why I'm pissed off, because I would like something a little more clear than that. But again, the lack of clarity that we have here in chapter 13 is also what makes this commentary and the discussions that follow important for understanding what Lacan is up to here. The stuff on sublimation doesn't go away. In fact, it comes up again and again in these middle chapters. Chapters 13, it pops again here in chapter 14, on page 14. Sublimation is again right here with us. So then, on these premises, we can now advance a little as regards what is involved in sublimation. Lacan's right back to that point that he was working on. And I told you enough earlier about how Freud articulated it in order not to have to repeat it. Zielgehemt, idealization of the object, and working with the drive. 
Freud takes a certain number of doors through which it can happen. We're not going to take those doors. You can read on if you like. We're driving towards a very particular goal here. An understanding of the drive as perhaps it may be pressed into the service of surplus enjoyment. Let's see how close we can get. Scrolling down here, still on page 14, chapter 14, one sublimates, he tells us, with the drives. On the other hand, what do we know? Where do these drives come from? From the horizon of sexuality. Not in the slightest way clarified up to the present because of the fact that they involve a sexual satisfaction. But we, what we are told is that their enjoyment is linked to sexuality. So the enjoyment afforded by the drive is linked to sexuality. Okay. It is not a bad thing at this level that we first began by positing that we know nothing about sexuality. And you can hear this in two ways. You can hear this as we started by saying, you're never going to learn how to hold your lady or your man by reading Freud books. But you can also hear this as saying that the field of the sexual is properly the field of the unconscious, where we know the most, but in an unconscious way. In other words, where we know nothing. On the contrary, what we have articulated and what I have articulated is that in the drive, there intervenes what is called in topology an edge structure. That is the only way of explaining some of its traits. Namely, that what functions is essentially something always roughly characterized by orifices and where there is found the edge structure. Now, this is interesting here. The drive is a medium or an instrument, a means of diversion from the sexual goal that itself is intruded upon. In other words, in the drive, something itself intervenes. The drive is a medium and thus an intervention, a go-between, if you will. But even at the operation of the drive, something else jumps in there. Something else intervenes. And whatever it is, it has an edge structure in the mathematical sense, that of an orifice. Now, if you know what an edge structure is in math, you know, you know press fast forward. But for the rest of us, think of it this way. A bunch of dots in a graph and then connect the dots. The connected dots that would form a network, like a social network, the connected dots that would form a shape, those are edge structures, a series of nodes connected by lines. That's what he means here when he says, in the drive there intervenes what is called in topology an edge structure. What functions at the level of the drives are orifices with edge structures in the mathematical sense. Check it out. Because only this edge structure, taken in the mathematical sense, allows us to begin to comprehend what Freud articulated no less at the, feet, at the level of drawing, of pressure, one of these four elements that go into the production of the drive. Check out the lectures on the drive in Seminar 11 for more on that. Namely, the constancy of the flux that this edge conditions. I put in a note on this. I improved it again in the last edition, referring to what in vector theory is defined as rotational flux. This is all great stuff. 
So in an edge structure, you have a collection of like edges, arcs, lines, vectors, if you prefer, that connect various nodes into a graph or a network of some kind. Now, this could be four dots connected to make a rectangle. Or if you read Lacan, this could be four dots connected to make a lozenge. Note, not coincidentally, that in the math theme for the drive that we see in the upper right-hand quadrant of the graph of desire, Lacan tells us in the subversion of the subject essay that when the drive is operationalized, the barred subject fades and it follows as the demand of the other fades. What's left when the drive is operationalized is the lozenge which has an edge-like structure. It is an edge structure akin to an opening. And specifically he's saying here, an opening that has a flux to it. Now that's interesting. He describes it as a rotational flux. Now you can read about rotational fluxes in vector theory, as he suggests here, but it, it works in all these other fields too. And it's much easier to understand, I think, in fields like physics, engineering. Um, fluid dynamics, I think, is the easiest way to understand what he's doing here with the rotational flux. And remember, he's fundamentally talking about erogenous zones. But let's, let's play along with the high no nosebleed mathematics that he's working with here. In fluid dynamics, a rotational flux marks the vorticity of a fluid, yielding eddies and other kinds of like turbulent flows. So think about the way water goes down a drain in a bathtub or a shower, the way that tornadoes and other cyclone phenomena look. You have a rotational flux that suggests the kind of like vorticity, a vortex of sorts formed by fluids circulating around. And that's his point about the orifice here, about the edge structure that intervenes in the drive. He's talking about a limited number of mouths on the human body, the openings or the erogenous zones that are conditioned by the prohibitive logics that facilitate the drive ultimately down the road. Now, we're going fast with this, and it assumes that you've got some understanding of all of this other stuff about prohibitive logics, how the drive is conditioned by these prohibitions that result in the removal of certain objects and all of this basic drive theory. Again, you can go back, watch the lectures on the drive and catch up with this stuff. Here, the important part is how these orifices move. In the lectures on the drive, you heard me say that the characteristic feature of these erogenous zones, these sources of the drive, is that they all have opening structures that can be closed to varying degrees. So the invocatory drive is connected to the ear. This is an opening in the human form that is almost always open. At the other end of your body, you've got the anal drive connected to your lower O-ring known as the anus, which if you're lucky is almost always closed. Your ears are always open, but your anus is almost always closed. And when it opens up, it's plugged until it's not, at which point it closes up again. But that opening closing structure is what we see operating at the level of an erogenous zone to which a drive is connected. The mouth, for instance. Lacan's very careful to say in his earlier work 
that when I activate an oral drive, it doesn't just mean I'm shoving food in my face. When I order the food off the menu, I'm also exercising my oral drive because the operation of the drive is intruded upon or mediated through the operation of a certain erogenous zone. The scopic drive is very much defined by the blink. In fact, you might even say that the central feature of the scopic drive is not the gaze, but the blink. And Lacan has never really said that it was the gaze to begin with, by the way. The zone of the scopic drive is not in the field of the gaze. It's in between the gaze and the look, the position from which I might be being watched and the position from which I, in fact, look. It's between the eye and the gaze that you see the scopic drive firing. And here what I'm suggesting is that even at the level of the eye, whether it's yours or mine, it's at the level of the blink, of the ocular cavity that can be opened or closed. The math theme of the drive reminds us of this. By leaving when the drive is operationalized, an opening. And it would be an opening that can be closed. With all of that said, I would like to suggest that Lacan is here adding to this notion of erogenous zone when he adds an emphasis on rotational flux. What he's suggesting is that the erogenous zones that are operationalized with their open-closing in-out logics when the drive is activated, these erogenous zones also have a circuitry to them. It's not just, in other words, about opening and closing my mouth, but also about the circuit that is created at the level of the edge structure known as the lips. So a nasal drive wouldn't just be about ways that nose cavities can be opened and closed. Ask Freud about the nasal passages. Instead, it would be in part about the way that your finger can trace the edge of a nostril. The same with the ear. The ability to trace and run a circuit around the edge of the opening is part of what he's getting at here with rotational flux. There's a certain um, uh, vortex-like structure that you can activate also at the level of the erogenous zone. And you can see, in fact, it's even tough to talk about these types of like, like circuitry, this like the velocities of working a circuit here in ways that stick true to what Lacan is doing here with um, the idea of a rotational flux. But nevertheless, that's where we are. You even get the sense at this point in chapter 14 that Lacan knows he's really stretching out here. On the one hand, he's starting to carve out an understanding of the drive as linked to sublimation, and then he jumps back and says, wait a minute, but erogenous zones intervene. And then he's into mathematics with edge structure, and I would also suggest into fluid dynamics, talking about rotational fluxes. And then in the very next paragraph, he like takes a breath and calms down and tries to come clean. It's always good when Lacan does this kind of stuff. Page 15, the first full paragraph beginning the drive. The drive, in a word, just by itself, designates the conjunction of logic and corporality. Now, 
The corporal dimension of the drive is the way that it links up with various erogenous zones, all with opening and closing-like structures. Your hands can also, there could be a manual drive. Hands can be opened, hands can be closed. Your pores, you can go on and on about this stuff as some scholars have. The corporal aspect of the drive is very clear. The logic of the drive is this new part. The circuitry of the drive, the rotational flux that the drive effects at the level of the orifice, that's interesting. That's something new. And yet at the same time, when you look at the diagram of the drive with the source and this bell-like arrow that comes out and then returns, you start to get a sense of the logic of the drive, how the drive moves. There's a movement to the drive. So the source is this spinning vortex, if you will, and out comes the drive and its aim circling around OJA and then right back into the vortex, into the black hole. It's one way to think about the logic. I would like to suggest here, though, in 16, we're going to get a new way to think about it, too. The enigma is rather the following, he says. As edge enjoyment, how was it able to be called to the equivalence of sexual enjoyment? Great question here. The enigma of the drive as edge enjoyment, as an enjoyment of tracing around one's erogenous zones, if you will. How was this able to be called the equivalence of sexual enjoyment? If you have all the same a little imagination, I mean the possibility of linking up what you cogitate somewhere in your convolutions with your experience that is certainly obviously accessory and always between two doors. You might all the same say at the level of sexual enjoyment. It is rather a matter of tumescence. In other words, swollenness, especially of one's genitals, paving the way for sex, for example, and then of orgasm. What does that have to do with the functions of the edge? These are Lacan's questions here in chapter 14. If there were not the configuration of a vacuole of the whole proper to enjoyment to this something intolerable, remember the intolerable neighbor, for what is essentially regulated as a tempered tension, you would see nothing in the sexual that is analogous to what I am calling in the drive and edge structure. So everything around Lacan's theory of the drive's erogenous zone as an edge structure, he says, depends upon the configuration of the vacuole, which he here defines as the whole proper to enjoyment to something that is intolerable in the fields that surround those holes. For what is essentially regulated as a tempered tension, you would see nothing in the sexual that is analogous to what I'm calling the drive with an edge-like structure. And then he goes on to talk, among many things, among other topics, about the vaginal wall. We don't need to get too far into that. The important move that he's making on the next page is to shift from 
the vaginal wall and the theme of feminine enjoyment to a topology of something that here resembles the thing, das Ding, the capital T thing. And now you can recall that he also jumped in early on and said, let's get back to seminar seven on the ethics of psychoanalysis, which as you know, is where Das Ding pops and then thereafter goes away. The thing for its part is undoubtedly not sexed, he says at the top of 16. This is probably what allows us to make love with her without having the slightest idea of what the woman is as a sexed thing. Not coincidentally, he then moves to courtly love, much as he did in Seminar 7. And then he's back to the topic of art, which we saw a bit of in Seminar 11. Art for him is a touchstone for a certain type of enjoyment. Now, what we have to remember here is that all of this is going to have something to do with the forbidden zone of enjoyment, which he likens to a vacuole or a hole in the field of the big other. And then this idea that a drive can be diverted from this, diverted from this into other pursuits, toward other objects, toward other goals that are not exactly sexual. And that's the real question here. Not just where is a diverted sublimatory drive headed, but what does it recoil from? The sexual enjoyment, this whole of enjoyment, this forbidden central extimate space in the field of the big other, call it what you will, that's what the drive, when pressed into sublimatory purposes, diverts from, recoils from. It's at the level of the work of art that we start getting a sense of where it heads instead in this diverted sublimatory way. There are great clues to this that we absolutely have to pursue. Let's pursue these clues as closely as we can. What the drives are sometimes made to satisfy, apart from enjoyment, by way of a diversion from enjoyment, I would suggest is our lust for social esteem. Esteem as determined by what Lacan here calls our purses. And that's why the work of art is popping up here, is that there's a kind of diversion that the drive can take mediated through capital that puts us into contact with things we can purchase in order to produce a different kind of satisfaction, a sublimated kind of satisfaction. Notice how this comes up toward the end of chapter 14, here in seminar 16. After his bit on the woman, after his bit on courtly love, he shifts to the work of art. Another aspect, the relationship of sublimation to what is called the work of art. It's a familiar topic, but it's one that here he gives a very strict emphasis to. What Freud tells us 
When Freud tells us that sublimation gives the satisfaction of the drive, and this in a production regarding which the characteristic of esteem that society gives, it is quite unexplained. Why the devil, when we have so many concerns, if it is not indeed on the hypothesis of diversion? Namely, that it is precisely in order not to be occupied by worries that are much more important that we get a taste for some of the things that are poured out within reach of our purses in the form of novels, paintings, poetry, novellas. What could possibly be something about which we would be worried, preoccupied perhaps, that is much more important you hear Lacan here alluding to everything we've been talking about around the sexual, knowledge that is unconscious of the sexual, the field of enjoyment as a whole in the field of the big other. It's so as to not be preoccupied with that stuff that we get a taste for some of the things that are poured out within reach of our purses in the form of novels, paintings, poetry, and novellas. Taking the thing from this angle, there appears to be no way out. Nevertheless, I will give you, as regards what I will introduce the next time, too rapid a way in, the relationship of sublimation to enjoyment, since this is what is in question, insofar as it is sexual enjoyment, can only be explained by literally what I will call the anatomy of the vacuole. All right, so he sees it as a way out. But let's just slow down a second and take him at his word with this capitalist diversion where our purses intervene and we get a little taste of something perhaps even a little taste of something that a taste of something we'd rather not talk about by developing a taste for certain things like works of art, novels, paintings, poetry, and novellas. This comes up again in the next couple of chapters. Blasting forward just for a second to a passage in Seminar 16, which is going to get some attention from us later, but just by way of a hinge into the next conversation. Page 16, page 2. Because it interests us at the level of sublimation, it is indeed certainly, as with this sort of almost clumsy prudence with which Freud put it forward, the work of art, to call it by its name, that today's centers constitutes the aim of what we are stating about sublimation. The work of art is not presented otherwise at the level where Freud grasps it, obliges himself not to grasp it otherwise than as a commercial value. It is something that has a price, perhaps no doubt an exceptional price, but once it is put on the market, not all that distinguishable from any other price. What is to be emphasized is that this price is something it receives from a privileged relationship to value, to what, in my discourse, I isolate and distinguish as enjoyment. Enjoyment being this term established only by its evacuation from the field of the other. There you see it again. And by the fact 
by the position of the field of the other as locus of the word as such. What I would suggest is that part of what's missing from this description of enjoyment is a single word, surplus. The type of enjoyment afforded by the purchasing and consumption of goods of exceptional price, of commercial value, on a market, and so on and so forth, um, this is surplus enjoyment. It's not the kind of it's not the only kind of enjoyment afforded to the drive, but it is the kind of enjoyment that I would suggest allows us to talk about effectively two different types of drive satisfaction. What we have here between, I would suggest, early 60s and late 60s Lacan, perhaps Seminar 11 and Seminar 16, are two conceptions of the drive. One, desublimating and in service to real enjoyment. Think back to the work we did with Seminar 11 in our series on the drive. And another understanding of the drive that he's working with here in 16 that is sublimatory, that works by way of sublimation, and that is in service not to real enjoyment, but to what I would call surplus enjoyment. The real question here is, is there a way for us to link all of this to the image that Lacan keeps bringing up, that of a vacuole? I would suggest that it's possible, but we could make a bit more headway if we take a different image same from the same seminar that Lacan's working with here. It's an image that he gives us once more at the height of the fever he claims to have when he shows up to deliver the lecture in between 14 and 16 in seminar 16 here, namely lecture 15. It's in chapter 15 of seminar 16. Amidst all the talk in there of his illness, which is quite enjoyable in some ways, that he gives us another image as a supplement in the best possible way to what he's doing with the vacuole. And I think this might be the final term, the final confusion in this current discussion that allows us to bring some clarity to what he's up to here at the level of a drive that is not desublimatory, but instead yoked to the process known as sublimation here in a capitalist system. Final word here on chapter 14 in seminar 16. The question we've been answering here, or at least trying to put on the page, is what does the drive satisfy? And Lacan starts there on page six, but he's asking something very particular not just any understanding of the drive, not just any operation of the drive, but the drive when it is pressed into services of sublimation. Page five of chapter 14 gives us a good sense of how he's framing that. And I wanna to return to that only in order to mark its difference from where he ends some chapter uh, 14 here in seminar 16. Now at the bottom of 14, page five, what you see here is the with structure that we were talking about. And he finds it striking that Freud is using this mit dem trieb, with the drive. This term with, 
that it is striking to rediscover here from Freud's pen, at least for those who have heard me in the past hammering out this with on several occasions. And particularly in taking up the formula of Aristotle, it must be said that the soul not be said that the soul thinks, but that the man thinks with his soul. Something is satisfied with the drive. This with structure is important. When the drive is brought into services of capitalist consumption, of works of art, of courtly depictions of women and so forth, these examples that he's also messing with here, the drive takes on a with-like structure. It becomes an instrument a means, a tool, an organon, as he also says in these chapters that he's borrowing from Aristotle. Something is satisfied with the drive. Now, knowing that, he also adds, and yet there's something that intrudes upon the drive, that intervenes in the drive's operation, namely the erogenous zone. Now, we're going to talk about how to separate these out. On the one hand, you've got a drive that is ricocheting off of the central forbidden zone in the symbolic and the big other where enjoyment, the real and the sexual hangs out. And then you've got a notion of the drive that circles and occupies this center zone that is forbidden, this horrendously imminent neighbor. Here, what we see is something satisfied with the drive when pressed into services of sublimation. What is this? What is it when the other, on the other hand, Freud tells us that this drive that he dismantles from us, from these four dismantled terms, it is the formula that I have always underlined as essential from the, for the drive, that it is a montage of these four terms, the source, the pressure, the object, and the goal. Now, this is from Seminar 11, where Lacan claims that the fourth fundamental concept of psychoanalysis is the drive, and he works through the four basic elements of the drive as defined by Freud, source, pressure, object, and goal. This is kind of the anatomy of the drive, and he comes up with a diagram that he calls a montage that somehow captures how these four elements involve each other. And we can talk more about that, and we certainly will as we shift to diagram work here, but be sure and check out our work with this diagram in our series on Seminar 11 and our series on the drive. But again, the question here in 16 is, the drive will find itself satisfying what? He asks again at the top of page 6. This is today what is in question. Very precisely because of the fact that it is inhibited as regards the goal. That it elides by way of sublimation, what is involved in the sexual goal. So here again, we have an understanding of the drive that is inhibited with regards to enjoyment, the sexual, this forbidden zone at the center of the symbolic, at the center in the of the field of the big other, and that elides this goal, that diverts from it. The drive will find itself satisfying what? And what we are here suggesting in Lacan's critique of the work of art is that it satisfies basic logics, late capitalist logics of commodity consumption. We don't need to go much further into that at this point because what we want to do now is think about the other version of the drive that we have here in Lacan that is being intruded upon and isolated at the level of the erogenous zone. 
And that brings us really to the end of chapter 14. In the very passage we were just working with, where we're talking about the work of art and the types of social esteem that we would try and buy our way into. And I've likened this to a kind of surplus enjoyment. It's not the kind of forbidden enjoyment that Lacan is talking about when he refers to the sexual in these middle chapters. It's instead a kind of consumerist enjoyment that brings with it a certain amount of social esteem, social capital, if you read Pierre Bourdieu. Notice where he goes from here on page 17 at the end of uh, chapter 14 here. The relationship of sublimation to enjoyment, since this is what is in question insofar as it is sexual enjoyment, can only be explained by literally what I will call the anatomy of the vacuole. Now, we paused on that passage in a, a few moments ago, and now we can really start to make sense of it. So he's carving out, it seems to me, another way of understanding how the drive works. Not necessarily in this sublimated fashion, but in another fashion that he likens to the anatomy of the vacuole. That is why I made on the right the outline of this something circumscribed that represents the vacuole. Now, if you turn to the very opening page of 14, you see this in the third column, the object, autolithic, and then there's an arrow pointing to a circle with a dot in it. Here's that vacuole, a kind of membrane organ that he wants to throw out here. We don't have the diagram right here on 18, but it's at the front of the chapter. That's why I made on the right the outline of this something circumscribed that represents the vacuole. Imagine for a moment this vacuole as being the auditory apparatus of one of these little animals that are called, I don't know why, primitive. Nothing is more primitive than anything else. But take a Daphne, it's basically a tiny shrimp, he says, but much simpler. It's found in waterways. And you know that when Lacan shifts to discussing animals, he's usually on point. Lacan really is on point when he's discussing animals, insects, bees, for instance, give him his whole theory of communication. Here he's on to shrimp, and he wants to talk a little bit about shrimp in order to get at this notion of the vacuole. This little shrimp, in something or other that one can say serves as an auditory organ, but at the same time as a vestibule, namely equilibrating, equilibriating, equilibrating, he tells us here, has what is called, and another good word here, autolith. An autolith. This is something inside the opening of the ear. This is the dot that he's drawing inside that opening. If I know all that, it is because I have looked at the reviews. It is an article by a, by a psychoanalyst. I will tell you who the next time that drew my attention to it. It becomes very amusing if, in place of the autolith, you put a little piece of iron, and afterwards you play around with magnets. This gives him enjoyment. Naturally, one can presume it from the extraordinarily different attitude it takes up. Altogether, a man in its mortal life. So now what you have to imagine is Lacan toying around with a little miniature shrimp, and particularly the miniature shrimp's auditory organs, and Lacan's playing with magnets to try and basically get this shrimp off. 
It's a terrific image to have in your mind here. Next paragraph. This is what I want to indicate to you as an introduction to the next time. It is objet that plays this role with respect to the vacuole. This is important. In other words, it is what tickles das ding from the inside. And this is going to be the image and the important image that allows us to understand these two different aspects of the drive. There is das ding at the level of the work of art, we might say, and then there's something that tickles it from the inside at the level of objet. Now, this is kind of a wild thing that he's throwing out, per usual, at the very end of one of his lectures. There you are, he says. This is what constitutes the essential merit of everything that is called a work of art. Nevertheless, the thing deserves to be detailed. And since objet a has more than one form, as Freud explicitly states in saying in his analysis of the drive that the object can be variable, it waltzes around. Nevertheless, we have managed to state four of them, oral object, anal object, scoptophilic object, and the sadomasochistic object. What is that one, Lacan says. Let us say that in connection with this one, I am reserving some surprises for you next time. Now, the next time, of course, is chapter 15, where Lacan shows up with that wicked fever. And the surprise he gives us there, I would suggest, is not the one he intended to here at the end of chapter 14. The important part to note here is this bit about a vacuole that Lacan then transforms into the auditory organ of a shrimp that has an autolith or a little something inside the opening of this auditory organ. There is an opening, and then there's something in the middle of it that gives him enjoyment. No doubt Lacan, but also the shrimp. This little thing in the auditory organ, this autolith, he likens to objet. It plays the same role with respect to the vacuole, this element inside the vacuole. In other words, it is what tickles das ding from the inside. And there you are, Lacan says. That's a really important point. What is das Ding relative to the theories of the drive we're working with here? And what, more importantly, is this thing inside das Ding that tickles it from the inside? An autolith? That's not entirely helpful. Lacan's notion of the vacuole? That's not entirely helpful either. But nevertheless, he's putting us on point here. There's das ding and something that tickles it from within. Let's see what we can make of this. Thanks for listening to Lectures on Lacan. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music. <laughs>